I'm just going to share, you know, an experience that I've had that basically forced me to face whether I really believe in God and His finished work or not. Just a time when it, I was challenged. And so um, I'm going to start by reading the first couple of verses of Ecclesiastes. So this whole story I'm going to tell you is basically this kind of hopelessness, just spinning your wheels, not really getting anywhere, what's the meaning of all this, attitude that Solomon had. I kind of lived in that for probably about five to six weeks during the height of the pandemic with what I was looking at around me. And until finally something kind of shocked me out of it. You know, the whole concept that this is a temporal situation. We're in this world for a very temporary time. And our perspective needs to be an eternal one. One that, you know, by faith we believe in an eternal perspective. Meaning, after we die we're going to heaven. And that's the, the true height of our existence. Forevermore will be to be without sin in Jesus' presence. And that's the hope that we look forward to. And without that hope, and without the precious promises, if we didn't have that hope and that faith, everything that happened here would be meaningless. I'll start by reading just the first couple verses of Ecclesiastes, the first chapter. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit? hath a man of all his labor which he hath taken under the sun. One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually. The wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full, Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath already been of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. You know, you can read that, what brought him into that attitude, into that frame of mind. And so I actually got to that frame of mind. And so because this is a personal story and a personal testimony, I'm just going to share some details with you about what I experienced and why I was in that frame of mind. Um, March of 2020, as soon as the pandemic hit, I started working as a crisis nurse under the Department of Defense. So actually it was, you know, like subcontracts under the Department of Defense. And what they would do is they would book you a plane ticket. You would fly to the facility that was in need. You would work 14-hour shifts every day, seven days a week, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, until you tapped out, until you said, I can't do this anymore, and then they'd fly you home. And then so I did that for about 18 months over the course of the pandemic. And so I would usually I would go I would stay between 2 and 3 months work every day and then I'd fly home for maybe a week week and a half and then I would go out again. And the locations that I went to included Seattle, New York City, 
and then several cities in, in Texas. So when I went to New York, there was, it was all ages. It was up and down. It was all ages, and I stayed there for two full months. In a normal situation outside of the pandemic, uh, a critical care nurse only takes care of two patients that are on a ventilator, and that's considered a full uh, responsibility. You, you can work really hard just taking care of two people. In New York, I was taking care of six or seven people. Running is literally running down the hallway, working as hard and as fast as I could, and still not providing what we would call just the standard of care. Too much for a person to handle. But that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so I had faith in the wrong people, the wrong people. I had faith that we were conducting a lot of experiments with like different drugs, right? Because this was a novel virus. They were trying to come up with new treatment processes. And so we were trying different types of drugs, different types of um, ventilator protocols, different types of proning protocols where you put the, the patients on their belly. And so I put, looking back, my faith in mo man's modern invention. So I was in New York for two months straight, I don't know, goodness, hundreds and hundreds. I, I personally took care of hundreds of people. No patient, not one patient that I personally took care of survived. But I was still hopeful that, okay, all these people are dying. And when I say all, I mean everybody. So the whole time I was there, I think there were two people that made it to a long-term care assisted facility with a tracheostomy and still ventilator dependent, but actually survived you know, longer than two weeks. And that was probably thousands of, of people. So there was maybe one or two survivors out of thousands. But I was still hopeful that the process of medicine would figure out a way to treat the, pan the pandemic. You know, I'm still working really hard. And then after New York, things started slowing down and things started ramping up in Texas. And so I was in a um, a city called McAllen, Texas, just about 20 miles north of the border. And what was really different about this facility is it was very heavy, you can, as you can imagine, in the Latino demographic. And I don't understand the pathophysiology, but something about that Latino demographic with that delta wave, people were dying really young. And the survival rates were maybe a little bit better, but not much. Uh, I think I actually personally took care of maybe one or two people in the four months I was there that did survive to leave the hospital. Um, but again, I'm I personally took care of well over 100 people. So we're talking about once a patient makes it to the hospital and requires a ventilator or a breathing machine, we're talking about mortality rates of greater than 95%. And in Texas, I was regularly taking care of teenagers and people in their early 20s. And I know that sounds really dark, right? And I, I only describe that because I, I'm trying to make this personal, because this is my personal testimony. And so I want you to understand where, what I was experiencing and what I was going through. I could really resonate with what Solomon was saying. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Because I was working 14 hours every day of the week and turning people so they didn't get bed sores and trying to do 
brush their teeth so they didn't get bacterial pneumonia via their ventilator tube on top of their COVID. We're giving people these antibiotics, trying to give them drugs on time. <clears throat> All the little things that really make a big difference when you're trying to take care of somebody in critical care, like measuring how much bodily fluids come out, that way you can make sure they're hydrated and you give them the same amount, right? And all these little things are a lot of work. And after a while, after people die and they die and you work hard and they die and they work hard and they die, you start thinking, what, you know, what difference does it make? This patient's going to die anyway. Those were the thoughts that were going through my head. What's the point of this work? I'm doing so much work, they're just going to die anyway. And then what really snapped me out of that was one day at the end of my shift, I was waiting for the bus to come and uh, collect us. And so I was sitting outside, uh, and the bus was, was going to come. And a young man from the parking lot came up, and he was holding a cooler in his hand. And he's like, hey, man, my brother is upstairs. He's on the, on the fifth floor, and I brought him some milkshakes. This is his favorite food. Can you please go take it to him? I'm like, no, man, no, I'm, I'm, hopefully you guys, <laughs> hopefully you guys know me enough to, at baseline, I'm usually a relatively compassionate person, right? So this kind of gives you a window into kind of where my mind was and how burnt out I was at the time. I was like, no, man, my shift's over. I'm not going back into the hospital right now. I'm waiting for my bus. And he's like, oh, please, you know, it's just one shake. And I want you to remember that line because I'm going to come back to it. He looked at me and held up the cooler. He's like, it's just a shake. It's just a shake. Come on. Will you please take it to him? You know, my brother's in there. He's been in there for a week and a half. It's just a shake. And I'm like, oh, all right. Here, give it to me. And this, this is my attitude. This is how I'm talking to him. All right, all right, just give it to me. So I took the shake, and I took it up to the floor where patients were not intubated yet. They were on a machine called a BiPAP, which is a face, that, or a, a face mask that you kind of strap to their head. And it forces air in through their face so that when they take a, a breath in, it helps them take a deeper breath. And as they breathe out, it pushes air against their face so that it kind of keeps their lungs inflated. Right? So he's not intubated. Right? He just has the mask on. However, most of these people that are on these masks are on really high settings. And the second they take it off, their oxygen just drops so low that they'll start to become unresponsive. So we're not talking about a patient who's on a ventilator, but somebody who's still very, very sick. And as soon as they take off the mask, they just they feel like they're drowning. So I walked the cooler up to him. He was on this floor where he was on the, the BiPAP machine. And then I walked in, and I was really surprised because the, the kid I was looking at was, I think he was 18 or 19. But I just remember looking at his face, and when I walked in, the nurses were so short-staffed that usually when, on, on these patients, usually when you, came, when you went into a room, it usually meant that something was alarming. So as soon as I walked in, I'll never forget his face. He looked at me, and it was a face of fear. You know, he just looked at me, and he just, he was a kid, and he looked so scared. And I'll, I'll never forget his face. But then I'm like, oh, man, you're okay. Nothing's alarming. And then he had this look of relief on his face. I'm like, Hey, your brother was out in the parking lot, and he hunted me down, and he brought you some milkshakes. And I couldn't even see his, his mouth because of the, the mask, but his eyes, man, he just he lit up and he smiled, and he just went, you know, held his hands together kind of like in a, in a thankful posture. 
I'm like, no problem. All right, enjoy. And then walked out because I didn't even want to, because I, 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 glanced, I glanced at the BiPAP settings and I looked at his oxygen saturation um, and I knew that as soon as he took off the mask, he would instantly desaturate and his oxygen would plummet. So I knew that even the chance of him drinking this whole entire milkshake would almost be an impossibility. Like his respiratory status would not allow him to even drink a milkshake. And, and I knew that. So I'm like, just take it in sips, okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll do. So I saw him like kind of shoving the straw in through the side of the mask and manning to get little sips. But his face really, really shocked me. And I say that because I kind of not become hardened or calloused, but I'd kind of started to disconnect a little bit just to try to do my job. But his face was one of just a young, scared face that it kind of like, no, these are people. These are people that I'm taking care of. But anyway, two days later, I was working, I was working in critical care. He was on the step-down unit. Two days later, they called the, you know, the code blue overhead and then brought the bed up while doing chest compressions, and it was this kid. So then I helped to you know, get the, the uh, breathing tube in and start the, the drugs to make him go to sleep and his, start the drugs to paralyze him. And then I was just kind of devastated by this because even though I knew statistically when I walked into the room a couple days ago, what does it matter? This kid's going to die. Intubating him and starting the paralytic, the brother's line kept going through my brain. Man, it's just a shake. It was just a milkshake. And so for the next like three or four days, Man, I just worked as hard as I possibly could. I knew, did everything I possibly could to try to help this kid. I mean, when it came to turning him, when it came to medicines, when it came to managing the ventilator settings, just as, as he needed it, I mean, I just poured out physically all I could do to help this kid. And he finally ended up dying maybe four or five days later. But my question is, was it just a shake? And then it kind of dawned on me, the labor that I did for five days as a professional healthcare provider, and then he ended up dying anyways, what was the most important thing I did in that six-day window? Bring, I think, bringing him that shake. And the brother really was responsible for that act of kindness, not me. I did it with a bad attitude. But... The act of bringing him his favorite milkshake and, and giving him that comfort, that was more important than the spinning my wheels and, and doing what science you know, had to offer. And so let's read the last, like the last half of the last chapter of Ecclesiastes now. And we'll kind of close this, this thought process. This is the last chapter of Ecclesiastes is chapter 12. And then let's read the last paragraph, so starting in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. 
the preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end in much study is weariness of the flesh. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So here's the whole duty of of man, to fear God and keep his commandments, because God sees everything you do. So Solomon was a very wise man, right? And so this was in a good time in his great wisdom. He was able to look out and say, what, what's the point? We're all working really hard to accomplish something in our lives, and what's the point of it? But here's what's incredible is my thoughts while I was kind of in that hospital is, what's the point? They're all going to die anyway. But here's what's silly about that thought is, unless Jesus comes back, what's going to happen to 100% of all of us? We're all going to die anyway. So Solomon saw this reality. I was only forced to really think about this concept when basically life cycles were in, you know, fast forward right in front of me and I was faced to deal with it. So the point I'm trying to make is the duty of man to keep his commandments. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Here's what's amazing. The things you do and the things you don't do or the, the, the good works are important. Because they are eternal. Why? Because the only eternal one is taking account of those things. And without our hope of God's finished work and the heavenly place and mansions that he set up for us, and it all would be vanity. But the thing is, laboring in God's kingdom is not vanity because that is an eternal labor because the eternal one has taken into account those acts of labor. And so it is worthwhile and it is worth doing. And that is where our emphasis and our priority and our focus should be on, on laboring in his kingdom. And everything else doesn't really matter because it's all going to pass away. And then that verse um, that Paul mentioned, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared of the glory which shall be revealed in him. The, the things that we perceive as, you know, bad things like um, death and suffering, insignificant compared to the glory of God, his finished work that he accomplished here on this earth, and also the eternal glory of paradise, of being in his presence. So my charge is, that I have to remind myself of, and hopefully that I'm conveying to you without depressing you all, is that while we live, think of it as a short window of opportunity to do good works and labor in his kingdom because it's fleeting. And then it's fleeting before we go to be in paradise with Christ forevermore. So use this small window of opportunity, also known as 
our mortal lives to serve him in the kingdom before our immortality takes over and we go to heaven with him.